This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Grab its new game, Time Watch, or any of its supplements at a 10% discount. For a limited time, use the voucher code TIMEHUT at the Pelgrane web store. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Wrecks of the Old 97. Toronto Music. The Emoluments Clause. And the Hands of Juan Perone. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. Greetings, beloved listeners. Uh, you may be interested to know, I certainly hope you're interested to know, that finally... Your prayers have been answered, your pleas to an indifferent heaven have been heard, and yes, Ken and Robin merchandise is available. Finally, you can go amongst the hoi polloi proudly bearing the flag of your podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff t-shirts and other stuff, available at tpublic.com backslash user backslash Ken Robin. Look for the link in this and all show notes. Yes, uh, we have an initial uh, wave that have gone out, and by the time this drops, we may have uh, yet more, but we're going to be... Uh, we start out with sort of the obvious ones, like the show logo, and then the themed uh, shirts that people have asked for, like Metaphor Drift, Metaphor Drift, and other shirts named after past episode titles uh, will begin to propagate out as our uh, beloved and skillful graphic designer, Will Hindmarch, lovingly handcrafts each and every one of them. And uh, we had a uh, goal on the Patreon to uh, make a shirt available every six months. Uh, and since we've come up with this better way to do it, uh, we've replaced that goal. So now the $2,000 goal uh, will be if we hit that level, um, I will maintain a letterboxed uh, list. Uh, letterboxed is a site that allows you to track your film consumption. Uh, I'll maintain a list of all of the films that we either uh, mention positively on the show or that get a, a recommended or higher rating on uh, Ken and Robin Consume Media, or uh, maybe good or higher. We'll work that out. And Ken, you'll do likewise with a Goodreads list of books. Right. So I think we've successfully preambled and can now segue into our first hut. Welcome all to the Gaming Hut, but this is not just any Gaming Hut. This is not a generic Gaming Hut. This is a very specific Gaming Hut, and it is the hut in which Ken runs his game, 
Rex of the old 97 for his gamers. So, Ken, as a GM, start by painting us a word portrait, uh, not of the platonic ideal hut with a shag carpet and the Peter Frampton Comes Alive album cover, but your actual environment in which you uh, run games for your uh, excited and uh, trembling uh, gamer pals. My actual environment and the excitement and trembling is often more present in the breach, but still it's there metaphysically, I feel. Uh, the actual environment is uh, a friend of mine's living room. Uh, there is a long sofa and a coffee table. And uh, it's actually a sectional because it bends around the wall. Uh, there is a Game Master's armchair, which is not as good as the other armchair, but it's closer to the table, and that's the important thing. And about 8 million televisions because they're uh, guys with uh, video gaming Jones to keep up. And two cats, which are delightful, Duke and Duchess, who sometimes ignore us, sometimes uh, demand scritches during the process, sometimes just sleep cutely, distracting the GM briefly while he's trying to summon up a vision of unutterable horror. And presumably knock any D20s under one of the couches. That uh, there's the, the occasional knocking, but that's more often the players than it is the cats. Uh, also, there are two large aquaria, each containing a turtle, because the turtles do not get along. Or rather, uh, one of them would get along, but the other one is a problem turtle and must be <laughs> segregated. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Plus well, the standard accoutrement of books and video games and DVDs and whatnot that uh, that make our, our, our houses and, and homes so very delightful. And occasionally, if we've all been very good, a cheese plate. Ooh. So now that we're all imagining the, the sectional couch and the turtles giving each other the stink eye, uh, we can move on to uh, Fred Kish, our Patreon backer, and his multi-part question uh, inspired by... Uh, reading your uh, tweets on uh, Gaming Night when you refer to what's going on in your game. And your game is what night of the week? Mondays. Monday, Monday night. nights. And so uh, Fred has a bunch of questions about how you run your current game, which is called Rex of the Old 97. We've talked about your campaign uh, numerous times, I think, on the show of late. <laughs> but for those just getting their feet wet in this podcast, uh, can you briefly encapsulate uh, what it is and, and what's going on. Okay. Uh, Rex of the Old 97 is a, t is the title of it, uh, sort of a weird, elusive punning title because the game is Unknown Armies, second edition. It is set in the American Old West. Every year is one adventure, one scenario, one thing that happens in that year. Turns out to have Unknown Armies significance and the Cabal find out about it through the use of the Spirit Telegraph and travel there usually to mess it up or steal it, or involve themselves in some horrible way. Uh, the uh, Cabal are uh, centered around the El Dorado Railroad Company in Texas, and so that's their sort of uh, uh, style. Yeah, that's their home base. That's, that's their home their... base, and it's what they what their sort of standard response is, is to conspiratorially buy things um, and, and extend railroads and, ex and grind the face of the working man and stuff like right. that. So, so on the TV show of this, this is the standing set. This is the standing set, yes. is the White Elephant Saloon in Fort Worth, Texas is sort of their Drake Hotel or whatever, the Enterprise Bridge, then the railroad car that they travel around in that can magically fold space and go anywhere that the rails go at uh, uh, fast enough to not have to spend weeks in between scenarios not doing anything. Now, um, Fred's question is uh, so specific, it has uh, bullet points, it uh, does. lettered bullet points. Um, and in fact, there are two uh, questions with lettered bullet points. And the first one is, how do you run the game, basically? Do you... A, go in with a plan. B, operate completely spontaneously based on, say, player feedback. Or C, something else. 
as I think every GM knows, even if you go in with a plan, you are going to wind up something else. That's just how the world works. Yes, yeah, so you go in with a backup plan. Yes, I, I go in with what I think will happen, assuming the player characters are only as clever as I think they will be, which is never the case. Uh, but I have a notion of the sort of way that the story would play out if the, if the cabal didn't get involved. And then once they start getting involved, I have some notions of what specific elements of the plan might irritate or activate individual player characters so that they will hopefully be drawn to respond to them in a dramatically or arcanely meaty way. Something that will provide, uh, any of the, any of the various thrills for which we play the game. Then they screw it up with some completely off the wall idea and I get to scramble and react as in real, in the, in the, in the drama, in the fiction, the villains or the antagonists, many, many times they're not villains. They're perfectly decent capitalists, just like the player characters, um, uh, or are good guys, <laughs> simple men trying to strike, <laughs> trying to earn characters. a couple of, a couple of nickels to live on, but you know, when the cabal comes barreling into their plan, they react in a panicked, uh, haphazard way, grabbing whatever comes to hand and trying to douse the threat. So that's, uh, that's a good thing for me as the GM that I'm not always sure what's going to happen. And so I do get to react like a panicky 19th century occultist as opposed to like a, a smooth, um, a brilliant chess player. They have not actually so far gone after the only character in the game or the only NPC in the game who could even be described as a smooth, brilliant chess player, which is to say Grenville Dodge, who is a historical character, was Union Army Chief of Intelligence, uh, wound up running the Union Pacific Railroad for a while, went down to Mexico, helped build the Trans-Siberian, and in the game is in charge of something called the Informationale, which is the sort of uh, network of... of uh, of mystical uh, information that covers the world. So is he the Dodge after whom Dodge City is named? He is exactly the Dodge after whom the Dodge City is named and uh, has a great deal of, uh, of, of puissance and, and calm because he's, he's seen it all in the Civil War. Nothing can upset or annoy him. And so the players have decided, well, we don't want to join you, Grenville Dodge, but we're not going to run head on into your plans yet. So, so, good for so they've met and interacted with yes, him. Yes, they did. He, when they began setting up the Spirit Telegraph, he said, oh, this is the kind of thing the Informationnel could use. Let me buy it from you. And they were like, no. And he said, well, join me as a partner. And they said, no. And he said, well, all right. I have no response to that, but I will get back to you. Yeah. It's, it's as if players were uh, given a choice to give up some of their autonomy. Mm-hmm. And somehow, surprisingly, they took the choice of not doing that. Not that doesn't always happen, but it does happen pl- plenty of times. Yes. Um, so I think the next step is to move on to... Uh, the next part of the question, which is, in terms of preparation, uh, do you do A, a lot of intentional reading, i.e. Uh, the, the going into the plan part, or B, uh, do you draw on the vast sum of knowledge from all of your book purchases? And I, I bet it's some of column A and some of column B. What's the, what's the breakdown? Robin, you would in fact be correct. It is some of column A and some of column B. What happens is there are certain broader elements that I know are going to come into play because of B, because of all the book purchases. So I know that there is going to be the, the rise of populist movement, the greenbacks, uh, bimetallist question, all the other great stuff that's going to happen in the, in the, in the West that we're going to have electrification come on. I can foreshadow things like television and the internet as people sort of look forward and, and see that they're going to happen. I know what's going to happen to the main characters. Like I know what's going to happen to Jay Gould. I know what's going to happen to Leland Stanford. Um, so this is all vast sum of knowledge stuff. The deliberate each year's adventure, when I, you know, decide this will take place at the great Southwest strike, 
I then go and read up what I can about the Great Southwest Strike. I usually wind up, if it's going to be set at a specific place, for example, Tascosa, Texas, or the Lincoln County War, I will get a book on the topic. Uh, when they decided on their own hook to hunt and kill uh, Wade Hampton, who was uh, the senator from South Carolina, who it turned out was one of the head uh, honchos of the gray clergy, they decided they were going to go assassinate a sitting U.S. senator. So I had to get a biography of Wade Hampton so I could set up what his uh, plantation looked like and what sort of magical things he might be up to. Because once you start reading anything, you discover the secret magical substrate, not at all far beneath it, usually. And I think you had the same thing happen when you were going through L.A. looking for um, uh, weird sacred geometry, and it just kept pouring out on you. Yeah, it's it's deeply magical, Los mm-hmm. Angeles is. So uh, do you ever have to go, hey, wait a minute, don't go and meet this guy yet because I have to go research him for next week? No, I, they, I, I will fake it. If they are, you know, ins- I, I almost never say, don't go meet this guy. I don't know enough about him. I'll have them meet them, and then I'll learn what I need to learn you know, sometimes during the game on Wikipedia, but more often I'll base it on B, the stuff that I already knew about them. Then I'll go do the research and say, oh, that's why they didn't bring up this fact. It's because they're magically hiding it or whatever. And that provides me more information. So I guess the next thing to do is to uh, get a case study. And conveniently enough, uh, did you play last night? We did. We played last night. We are in the process of finishing the 1886 adventure. Right. And so uh, each adventure... uh, for each year, it takes a, a number of different sessions. Yeah, usually. <laughs> Every once in a while, I think this this should be one or two sessions. Five sessions later, it has been more than one or two sessions. Mm, that is ir- an eerily familiar phenomenon. Some of them I know going in are going to be long. Uh, for example, Tombstone, if I had had the courage of my convictions, I would have just set the entire game in Tombstone in 1881 because there's so much information and so much stuff going on uh, in and around that. But the Tombstone segment lasted... I think the better part of a year by the time all was said and done. I mean, that was a long, uh, you know, that was a long thing. 1886 is taking a little longer than I thought it would, but we are, we are seeing the end of the end of the road now. So you're arriving at game last night and what are the prior events that you're, that you're having in mind? And what is your pre-thinking process as you're, uh, headed there wondering if there will be a cheese plate or not? Um, last night is kind of weird because they finished the game before that deciding that they were going to team up with the uh, magicians who had been giving them static and whose hoodoo man they just killed. Uh, there's a, a rogue conspiracy of, of swan knights where the European uh, magical uh, and most often counter magical operatives from Europe, they've come over to America uh, a couple of times. They've, they've butted heads with the player characters, usually been sent packing. It turns out there are rogue swan knights who were active in Texas in 1886 and who uh, stole the uh, 40-gallon brass cauldron in which John Stith Pemberton made Coca-Cola because they needed a magic cauldron to do the uh, the Arthurian working that they were going to perform on Texas to turn it into a grail kingdom. So the player characters said, uh, went and stole it back from them in an ambush. And then said, well, rather than continue all this fussing and feuding, let's just invite them into a ritual to turn all of America into a Grail Kingdom and just make the ritual that much bigger and give them a seat at the magical table at Roswell, New Mexico that we have built out of the assembled bones of um, uh, uh, America's mighty uh, pre-antediluvian predators, (laughs) The, the, the opposition not used to being offered a seat at the table instead of uh, the hand of extirpation said, yeah, that sounds much better. So Going into this one, it was a lot of what's going to happen in terms of them trying to shore up their own support at the table and 
how are they going to sort of um, assemble the other material implements and the other magical knowledge needed to increase the power of this uh, ritual. Also, one of the player characters is determined, uh, for reasons known only to himself, to replace the Comte de Saint-Germain. And uh, I knew that there would have to be some weird stuff going on in San Francisco because they have to go to San Francisco and recruit uh, Mistress Mary Ellen Pleasant, who they've decided is going to be one of the their allies on the table. And they needed to talk her into it. So I knew that that was going to go forward. And so uh, with that in mind, yeah. how were you surprised by what your players went and did? This particular session is reacting to the big surprise of last session. So they have not yet figured out a way to betray even their own plans. <laughs> Although I'm sure we give them time, they'll manage to do it. And we haven't had the big session where they and all the other badass NPCs sit down at the table and do the ritual to elevate America into a grail kingdom. And uh, they are suspecting that while doing this, they may in fact summon up the Pendragon, who is, they believe, a the father of, an old, of, a, of a previous player character who is mad at them, a West Virginia mountain druid um, who considers himself the, the dragon and will... Uh, and will perhaps come among them in anger. And they are beginning to suspect that this ritual may not be as safe as most of your grail rituals should be. So then this was an unusually surprise-free session in which you didn't have to do any surprise thinking uh, in reaction to what they were doing. Yeah, this is this is very much a, a, a session where they are doing a lot of planning and deciding on things. And they will say things like, oh, do we have a, a a magic item that will be for the meats of the North? And then there's a great deal of argument over whether or not the Dipsomancer will give up uh, Leif Erikson's drinking horn to the ritual. And his answer was, no, I will not. And so that could have turned into a thing or, you know, it could have not turned into a thing. And it really is up to the player characters whether or not they, you know, start taking each other's treasures away and whatnot. Uh, the only things that I can do is when they go to San Francisco, remind them that Tom Sawyer wants them dead. And so they, uh, they had, they ran into an ambush by him and had to magic their way out of it. And uh, one thing that I noticed by contrast while playtesting Gumshi one-to-one is how much interplayer planning and discussion takes the load off the GM because in a, a regular multiplayer game, there's lots of time in which you can kind of sit back and kind of, as they talk out all their options, you can then think, of what their options are going to be. Or in this case, you could think of, well, what's the thing that they're not counting on? Uh, and the thing they're not counting on is Tom Sawyer's ambush. So you could give them that little surprise in what was otherwise a, uh, a, a fairly, not predictable, but... Uh, twist-free. Twist-free uh, adventure. Yeah. So uh, what are you going to... Uh, what's going to be going through your mind uh, prep-wise... Uh, when you return, uh, not this coming Monday, but the Monday after that, presumably, uh, what what do you have to establish in your mind before you sit down to play next time? I have to figure out the responses of all of the other NPCs. Who the the notion is that there are thirteen seats, one for each colony, around this mystical table uh, of America, and they've just filled the last seat, except for the seat that the dead and that the dead player character held. So his seat is open. That's where the Pendragon wants to come back. So I have to determine, A, all the other mystical characters in my game who wanted to be king of America are going to realize that this is their last shot, that they have to disrupt this ritual or hijack it somehow. So I have to sort of work out the cast of problematic jacks who will come pouring out of the woodwork to mess with them between uh, now and July 4th, 1886. Then I also have to figure out what are the responses of the various uh, other NPCs 
to being told, oh, by the way, we're turning America into a grail kingdom. Hope you want to help. Uh, is, is Jay Gould going to say, yeah, that sounds fine. Or is Jay Gould going to say, you mean a golden grail kingdom, obviously. And Leland Stanford will say, I, I believe you mean a silver grail kingdom, sir. And there will be a great deal of, of, of back and forth between them. And, uh, what is Wyatt Earp going to think of all this nonsense as a good Republican? He may be suspicious of the whole Megillah up until very recently, terrible bad guys that have been invited in. Are, are they going to stay true to their salt? Are they going to, uh, you know, obey? There's a magical compulsion on them to not mess with the ritual and not mess with the other player characters. But, uh, as I need to tell you, there's lots of different things that they can do to mess with stuff, such as, you know, shoot someone across the table from them and uh, open up some more seats that way. So any number of things might happen, and I have to sort of keep the boil on the outside and work up some likely uh, uh, interpersonal or interfactional uh, breakdowns on the inside so that the uh, so that the magical ceremony is not a matter of, well, we laid out the components, we did the magic, we rolled the dice, look at that, America's a grail kingdom, hurrah for us. And uh, I am also assuming that this is fairly emblematic of your style, that this... Uh series is a uh, kind of right up your alley and you're running it the way you would normally run it. And another series that you run differently is one that you're running deliberately as a change of pace. This is much more my standard rhythm. Uh, the one that we ran before this was very much uh, you're given a mission, you go do the mission uh, type gaming. The one before that was a Nobilis game, which was, if anything, even more sprawling and open-ended and magically resonant. So the change of paces tend to be tighter in theory, um, more sort of mission of the week type stuff. I like a, a, a bit of a sandbox in my world, and I like giving the players the sense that they can sprawl out, they can explore it, and that they can learn how to manipulate the, the world around me, the GM, in such ways that they get some degree of, of, uh, of, of the same sort of fun and power that I'm having by seeing how the historical nine pins topple. And you've got players who can find the bits of the sandbox that they want to activate and are good at um, making it happen and all agreeing on what it is that they want to more or less have happen and so that they can find the direction that you're not necessarily supplying. Yes, yes. They, um, uh, they're, they're usually pretty good at being proactive. Sometimes I have to put my, uh, put, you know, pump the gas a little bit to, to get them moving because, you know, as with anything, they will over-discuss. And as, and as normally, I don't mind it because th that's them having fun. It's not, it, it's not story movement, but it's not right. unfun. Yes. As long as everybody in the group is enjoying the, uh, the discussion as opposed to like, uh, you know, two people dominating and everybody else looking at me like a baleful turtle. Mm. But, but we have, <laughs> we, 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 we have a lot fun. of University of Chicago graduates in the, in the group. And so, uh, discussing the theoretical implications of what we've done is, is what they like doing. Yes. And sometimes, of course, they will, uh, taunt me. I mean, the, the, first of all, my players decades ago became blase about the fact that every single little element in history could be turned into magic. They're so over that. So now I'll say, and did you know that there was a mysterious poker game in Tombstone the day before the OK Corral and Ike Clanton and Doc Holliday played cards? To magically determine that, yeah, yeah, we, we figured that something like that happened. Um, and every now and again, I'll say, um, uh, and look here in this historical record of Billy the Kid, it's a mysterious stranger who shows up. That's you. And they'll say, yeah, all right. We, we knew that was going to happen. And so now they have taken to laying traps for me. So when they were going to ambush the, uh, 
the, the cauldron, one of them said, Hey, Ken, did you hear about the flood of Napoleon, Arkansas? And I said, I'm interested in this because Napoleon is thematically connected to uh, Saint Germain for complex reasons in the game. And so they were like, yeah, 1874, the Arkansas river bursts its banks and floods this whole town out in Arkansas and everyone's drowned and it's great. And I was like, oh yeah, this would be a great place for them to cross with the cauldron. And I'm beginning to put together this great dead marshes type um, a situation where they're in the drowned town and St. Germain's hand is against them. And there's all kinds of, you know, river pirate zombies or something. And then of course, being player characters, they ambush them on the far bank of the Mississippi and they never go to Napoleon, <laughs> Arkansas just to mess with me. But haha, the far bank of the Mississippi from there is Clarksdale, Mississippi, where the legendary crossroads at which um, uh, Robert Johnson did not actually sell his soul to the devil. That was Petey Wheatstraw. And so I was able to draw up all manner of great things. And then a quick Wikipedia search of Clarksdale while they were all bickering about something. Let me know that in fact, there was a fairly grotesque, but well, let's say racial mass murder there in which a free black militia was killed by the local Ku Klux Klan. And I said, well, I guess we know why that crossroads is sacred to the devil. So when they set up their ambush there, they did not know that in fact, there was an enormous army of very angry black ghosts who did not want them to be um, uh, doing their activities. So we had a great deal of fun there. Uh, well, I think that's a pretty good uh, a case study of what's going on at your gaming table. And so we can uh, start uh, finishing up the cheese and wave goodbye to the turtles and head on out to our next segment. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. The elevated conversation, the muted hockey game in the background, the sensitive and colorful stylings of the moose in the corner tell us that we've entered once more the stylish confines of the culture hut and indeed a Canadian culture hut a Canadian content culture hut, because Patreon backer Jeremy French has asked Robin, I believe, not me, to divigate upon the Toronto music scene. And Robin, is this inspired by our previous madness attempting to come up with parallel Framptons not coming alive? Yes, my, my but a, a momentary digression to name Max Webster uh, sent uh, Jeremy diving deep into the Max Webster uh, catalog and... Uh, uh, from there, he has decided that perhaps there are more treasures to be unearthed. So uh, bear with us, everyone else. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know if a music hut is going to emerge from this. Certainly, if we do a Chicago music hut, you could do a whole one just on chess records. Yes, you could do a whole one on any on any number of, of single blocks in Chicago. Yes. So here's here's my potted history of uh, a Toronto music. So it's not even just CanCon. This is just Toronto. So if, you're, if you're a Toronto music fan, I'm sure you will uh, you will wait for me to get to your favorite band, and I'll and uh, it won't happen. Out. So apologies <laughs> for that. And if the question is, why aren't you mentioning the Tragically Hip Robin, they're from Kingston. Yeah, so suck it, ignorant people. Do we begin with the band Toronto? Pardon me? Do we begin with the band Toronto? The Chicago no, of Toronto? We, we, we're we going in in, alpha, in uh, chronological order. Boo! So let us circle back in time. Let us uh, get in Ken's time machine and head back to Young Street, Toronto's main drag, in uh, the mid-60s, which are really when the 60s start. Uh, after the assassination of Kennedy and things are starting to get crazy. Well, in Toronto, things are getting crazy because there's a whole bunch of live music clubs up and down Young Street, which there uh, is not now and has not been in my lifetime as a, a resident of Toronto. But back then, uh, there was, and the uh, music was uh, sort of rockabilly and North American roots music. And the uh, prime exemplar of that is... Uh, Ronnie Hawkins, who is not a Canadian, he's an American uh, Southerner, but he came up to uh, uh, become sort of the head of the uh, Toronto music party scene with a sort of a rockabilly-infused uh, sound, and the band was uh, Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. Well, the Hawks, who we recruited all individually, included uh, Robbie Robertson and Richard Manuel and uh, Levon Helm, and uh, yes, that's the group that together became the band and the band uh, goes off and uh, they become first of all Dylan's uh, backing band when he goes electric and they uh, then go on to be uh, that famous solo act band so that's where uh, Toronto music or Toronto rock starts to become something and then a couple years later the center of gravity shifts to Yorkville uh, which is now a super Tony shopping district it's where the the Cartier is and all the other uh, high-end uh, retail, but at the time uh, was basically Toronto's Greenwich Village. And this is where the uh, folk revolution that happened in New York also happens with its own uh, Canadian inflection in uh, Toronto. And, and Toronto, like all of uh, the West, gets sort of caught up in 60s uh, you know, youth culture and rebellion. Here the rebellion uh, is... Uh, against the Vietnam War, but we're not fighting in the Vietnam War. And it's also uh, more about uh, sort of breaking away from the sort of staid uh, uh, parental authority and uh, embracing all of the freedoms of the counterculture. And of course, that uh, means bring on the singer-songwriters. So uh, Neil Young, uh, Joni Mitchell, and uh, Gordon Lightfoot are at Gordon Lightfoot, who is uh, from Aurelia, the same small uh, city that I'm from. There you go. All converge in Yorkville and sort of be, uh, and they're the ones who kind of establish the uh, very sort of literate, kind of laid back thread that uh, pulses through uh, Toronto music from uh, from then on and uh, continues to be uh, to this day in various iterations. The love of blues and roots music uh, is a continual thing in Toronto, and we have uh, some uh, blue-eyed blues bands as well. A downchild blues band is, I think, what I would point to as uh, an exemplar of of that. 
Uh, we also have another wave shortly after that Yorkville wave uh, where they continue the whole singer-songwriter thing. And uh, Bruce Coburn, uh, who you might know from his later song, If I Had a Rocket Launcher, uh, starts out in the uh, early 70s. A song as relevant now as it was when it was written. <laughs> yeah, there are still lots of people who uh, wonder if they what they would do if they had a rocket launcher. Um, so he's a... a uh, another sort of fixture of, of Toronto uh, music. Um, and of course, the one that probably most people in nerd world will respond to is Rush. I think the most people, you know, uh, until you get to Drake, I think most people, period, right? I mean, Rush, yes, super nerdy, but also super big. Super big. Um, and But but a real cult band, right? They, they didn't uh, chart or anything. And so they're the uh, sort of the, the prog rock uh, stream beginning to come in. But even so, this is very literate prog rock that is uh it's it's you know, it's uh to the extent that reading um uh and rand is literate sure sure yeah well for prog rock right yes uh, i mean it's I, tolkien I, or ayn rand pick I'm, your pick your poison yes. but uh I, I might even say pretentious uh when referring to neil pert's uh lyrics but although if we a, were wondering what the song yyz refers to it's toronto's airport it's toronto's airport that's, that's the airport, airport code yeah, uh, mystery resolved. And uh, this is where Max Webster comes in. They're sort of in the orbit of uh, a rush. They open for them a lot, and uh, as I said earlier, they're sort of the uh, midpoint uh, between uh, like Zappa and Rush. Uh, the uh, lyrics are very uh, surreal. So even you know a kind of a stoner band has a real attention to the the lyrics and the content of, of the words. Um, then we come to the uh, punk era, and uh, that's when uh, Toronto's a city, uh, so therefore it has a punk scene. Uh, the two big punk bands uh, would be uh, the Diodes and Teenage Head. Uh, the punk here had a real sort of pop undertone to it. Teenage Head was my favorite at the time. This is the music of my youth. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we, they played our high school. This is the band that there are three uh, high schools in my town. Uh, we were Park Street and the other, the bigger high school, uh, ODCVI. All of their student council arrived at our dance, smashed out of their minds. They came, all came drunk and it was a giant scandal. <laughs> and therefore, no one in, uh, in our county got good bands. Even uh, my uh, wife, Valerie, is from uh, Barrie, another nearby city. Even they didn't get good bands after Teenage Head played our high school. They uh, were unable to break into the American market. There's sort of a history of Canadian bands that are really cool, but just they can't figure out how to market themselves. And the name of their band is what prevented them from uh, uh, breaking through, just like a Vancouver band called the Paolas did not understand why no American radio station wanted <laughs> to play them. But at the same time, you also have a, uh, in Toronto, a real sort of uh, art school style of uh, influence of music. And then, uh, so that's where you get a Rough Trade, which was one of the uh, really kind of influential gender-bending bands with uh, the uh, singer Carol Pope. And uh, it was sort of, uh, had a, a synthy quality to it, but it was also uh, basically kind of the uh, uh, from the same cultural area of sexual challenge that uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show or John Waters um, movies came from. And so they were, uh, you know, uh, ever so, uh, you know, they're kind of had smutty lyrics and Carol Pope has a real uh, sort of great stage presence. And that, I think, also kind of exemplified uh, Queen Street culture in Toronto. Queen Street being 
at the time the sort of uh, uh, hipster counterculture area uh, where uh, uh, so many bands uh, played and uh, waited tables uh, in their in their off time. Martha and the Muffins would be another example from that period. They're kind of a new wave, a uh, bit of an equivalent maybe to Talking Heads. They, they uh, seem sort of blondie-y. Uh, a little blondie, maybe, uh, but without uh, without the element, I think, of sexual provocation. That, yeah, no, uh, I was unprovoked, but I was, but I, but I like musically the the qualities that were a lot of the ones that I find in blondie. Yes, it's definitely in that area, um, but also that same sort of heady David Byrne kind of uh, quality. Um, and so you may know their song "Echo Beach," that was a, a hit for them around the world. And as the eighties went on and the uh, punk and new wave faded, there was still kind of a Queen Street culture. Uh, so you had uh, a very popular band called Parachute Club, uh, which was uh, another band that sort of celebrated uh, uh, alternate sexual identities, but had a real kind of poppy, uh, rousing kind of anthemic quality to it. This is where uh, I throw in the band Toronto. Yes. <laughs> because it was an era where every every city, or every band uh that uh, lived in a city that hadn't already had a name um, made into a band. In the proud tradition of bands with geographical names being terrible. Yes. Like Chicago and Asia and Europe. I think the only geographically named band that's any good is the band Paris, Texas. Right. And some early Chicago is, is, is worthy of the, the, the title, I would, I would argue. But, All right, whatever. Go, but, back, to, uh, go Toronto, back to Kansas. <laughs> uh, d- did have a one-hit sort of catchy song, so I've included that on the Spotify playlist that will be in the, in the show notes. Yeah, and it was on that uh, playlist, by the way, that I that I heard for the first time Martha and the Muffins and was taken uh, so much by them. So that's yeah. that's my that 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 was my takeaway from Toronto music. Yes, and and my. Uh, uh, brother-in-law is a record producer and just recently produced uh, Martha Johnson's uh, new solo record, her first record in, in a long time because she's uh, had health challenges. So uh, other exponents of sort of the Queen Street sound would be Mary Margaret O'Hara, uh, sister of Catherine O'Hara. And uh, she has this uh, really uh, eccentric and trancing vocal style. She uh, rarely performs. She's very nervous when she does perform. And she released one a classic album that uh, I think everybody who listens to music in Toronto bought and has been waiting for another album to finally appear, and maybe someday it will. Um, another thing worth uh, talking about is the country revival that happens in the uh, mid to late 80s in Toronto where people realize that, hey, actual country music is kind of cool. Why don't we play it filtered through our kind of revivalist uh, Queen Street uh, perspective? And so uh, there's a singer who was very influential on the rest of this uh, movement. He also had a college radio show where he played a lot of classic country. And I went to see him on my uh, play. His name is Handsome Ned. I went to see him on my first night back in uh, in Toronto, coming back from their hometown, back to university for I think, my third year. And I realized he's really great, but it's boring to uh, go to a club by yourself. So the next night he was playing again, and so I gathered a bunch of my friends to come and see them. And uh, the uh, roommate of one of my friends, uh, Valerie, uh, I met for the first time trying to wrangle people to go see Handsome Ned. So uh, this is the musical act that uh, Valerie and I saw the first night we met. And reader, she married him. Yes. Uh, Sadly, though, (laughs) uh, Handsome Ned uh, also had a serious heroin uh, habit and uh, died shortly thereafter when he overdosed, and his friends left him in an alley. Um, but 
his musical influence uh, lived on bringing back the uh, sort of country element of musical culture. Uh, and so uh, Blue Rodeo became uh, one of the, uh, the biggest bands to come out of that scene. They still record the Cowboy Junkies, uh, you may be aware of. Uh, the lead singer Margot Timmons has this really sort of ethereal uh, vocal quality. I, I saw I saw them in concert with the Pogues and um uh uh the, the oh I forget who opened it was a, it was an Irish singer songwriter and he came out and he said this is odd because I'm performing between a band that makes less noise with twelve people on stage than any band I've ever heard and I'm performing before a band that makes more noise than any <laughs> band with three people on stage that I've ever heard so I'm just gonna make a normal amount of noise and I hope that that'll sound good yes that's uh. <laughs> That's uh, uh, a mismatch uh, on a scale with uh, the time that uh, Joe Jackson opened for The Who in Toronto <laughs> and sadly got pelted with bottles. Oh. Uh, I like both Joe Jackson and The Who, but uh, whoever was combining Two that. great tastes that do not taste uh, great together. Also in Canadian content, once uh, Bruce Springsteen opened for Anne Murray. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, and that an turned out to be a time. really terrible idea because yeah. the crowd at that point in time was there for Springsteen and were uh, perhaps less than gracious to Canadian songbird Anne Murray. Although I guess she's not a Torontonian or else she would have been in our list already, right? Uh, she's from the East Coast. Yeah. Um, so uh, this brings us to the ironic 90s uh, when the... Uh, sense of l lyrical play is still at work, but now uh, things are getting a little tongue-in-cheek. So you have bands like the Bare Naked Ladies, uh, who broke here and were already sort of kind of fading, and then they broke in the States because of a live album. And they're, uh, you will know them from the, the theme to... Uh, it's the Big Bang Theory, The Big Robin. Bang Theory, there we go. Um, uh, but uh, so the, uh, that sense of sort of uh, uh, being kind of uh, the... Uh, inoffensive yet witty boys next door uh, is uh, part of the bare naked ladies for a slightly harder version of the same sensibility. You get uh, per the pursuit of happiness. Yes. That's a great band. Yes. Well known for their song. I'm an adult now, which is uh, so they're a bit rockier, a bit more guitar driven, but still have that sense of, uh, you know, funny lyrics as well. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, you've got uh, Jeff Healy, who was a, uh, a great blues guitarist who, again, sadly is no longer with us. And uh, in keeping with the fact that uh, there are, you know, tons of, you know, you name a form of music, somebody in Toronto is playing it. Uh, there's the sort of unconventional jazz singer Holly Cole who comes up at this point and is worth checking out if you uh, like that sort of thing. But again, we still have the uh, stream of lyric-driven singer-songwriter uh, bands and acts. So you get uh, Rio Statics. Uh, which uh, they are very, very uh, consciously uh, Canadian-driven. They have a, an album, a concept album about the Group of Seven, and uh, so that they were sort of a staple uh, carriers of that sort of uh, roots art um, music until they broke out. Now, around the same time, Toronto is. It, I I knew this because um, I was uh, following the scene sort of tangentially uh, via mutual friends that we have. Um, Toronto was big in raves, right? And drums and bass, lots of that. I'm sure it was there. Yes. They, here you hit the, uh, the blind spot of your, uh, your humble correspondent. But I remember, um, uh, I remember that Toronto had one of those sort of pioneering urban panics in terms of shutting down all the rave clubs. Yes, that, that we certainly did. Yeah. And, uh, that it sort of, a lot of people who were playing Toronto then sort of, you know, played a bunch of smaller cities in America. And so they, 
they, their their uh, their act of driving away their uh, electronic has sort of spread it a bit, I think. Yeah. Although obviously it had already come out in Detroit and New York and other places in America, but still, you know, no, no rose without its thorn, or vice versa. Should should we get to hip hop? We are, I think, we are uh, running out of running room, if not out of Toronto musical room. Okay, but let's quickly mention. Uh, the um, millennial growth event of that that same string that I'm talking about. So uh, Ron Sexsmith is a, another really great sensitive singer songwriter. Uh, Feist is uh, well known everywhere else. Uh, and then, uh, so the irony that you saw in the '90s starts to go away back in, in favor of a sort of a, a sincere sensibility uh, with uh, Feist. A broken social scene, which she sometimes collaborates with, of course, another huge Toronto band, and. Uh, a metric, which is a harder version of that sound, but with uh, again with the attention lyrics is still going on. But this is where we get to uh, the uh, hip hop scene. Uh, Drake, of course, yes. is uh, the now the most famous Torontonian. Uh, I confess that uh, I'm not a. I don't get Drake. Uh, if you really like auto tune singing and uh, somewhat banal lyrics, uh, I guess you like Drake. If you like Degrassi. <laughs> I guess you like Drake. Uh, the Weekend is someone who he helped bring out another uh, really uh, big, current, popular singer with a lot of autotune in his tracks. Uh, my favorite uh, local hip hop guy would be Chaos. It would be K hyphen OS, uh, and uh, perhaps because he uh, bridges a, a, a whole uh, breadth of uh, genres, and I think the uh, the songwriting, which again is a Toronto value, I think is is more interesting in his case. So on the other hand, Drake did throw bottles at Chris Brown. So <laughs> yes, a hero, not the hero we need, but the hero we deserve as a person. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I dig uh, Drake and his uh, desire to add mythic resonance to Toronto. And he seems like a, a swell guy and uh, uh, full of Toronto virtues. I just, um, not so much the music. To his music. I don't understand. Well, these things happen. What the deal is. Um, and so there you go. So uh, head on over to the show notes and you'll find the Spotify playlist. And uh, if you want to explore any of those bands further, there are many, many catalogs uh, to explore. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. 
biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by generous Patreon backers exactly like... Dylan Edwin Hoover. Joshua Brumley. Morgan Ellis. Neil Dalton. And Oren Gashuri. The powdered wigs and the wooden teeth tell us that it's once more time to venture into the heritage-certified environs of the History Hut. And this time we're going to uh, look into the history of a word for, I don't know, no reason. Uh, You would think that the Founding Fathers, if they knew that suddenly we would all have to learn this word and what it means and how to pronounce it, uh, would have come up with an easier-to-say word. But we're here to talk about emoluments. Listeners, say it along with me. Roll it over your tongue. Emoluments. Emoluments. Can you say emoluments? Emoluments. 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 I knew that you could. So, uh, Ken, what is an emolument, and why were the founders concerned about them? An emolument is a, a pecuniary interest. It's basically gelt, money, pelf. Uh, the founders did not want the officers of the United States uh, to take a bunch of money from foreigners. They thought that that would lead them into bad decision-making, not in the interest of the country, that they would be swayed, even perhaps bribed by these foreigners. Uh, this was something that was uh, <laughs> not, I don't want to say it was unique in constitutional law in 1787, but it was usually considered, even in uh, the, the British, from whose constitutional tradition we drew, that one of the great things about holding public office is you got to take fat bank from people. And uh, the Constitution says, well, we probably can't prevent you from taking fat bank from people, but let's try and keep them to American people. Let's only be bribed by Americans. Can we do that as a people, as a country? And that is the uh, that's the emoluments clause. And so, so do we know who among the uh, the founders were particularly hot to make sure that wound up in there? I, I don't think that there was a specific uh, squabble back and forth over the emoluments clause. I think it was it, because it's sort of tied up in the nobility clause that uh, no uh, the United States won't grant any titles of nobility. And so no people holding noble titles in theory then will get to be uh, part of the government of the United States. And that was a big deal because. The question is, that's a negative law, right? Which means that therefore it implies Congress can do other things. And so that was a big uh, philosophical question. That's what caused in some people's reading the Bill of Rights to be uh, written was because, look, if you just said a thing that Congress can't do in the Constitution, that implies it can do everything you didn't say it could could not do. So let's put in some amendments to say, no, it can't do those things. Right. So, so this was just something that there, there wasn't a lot of controversy around, uh, strangely, because there's a big break, as you suggest, from mm-hmm. how government was previously done. Everybody looked around and said, yeah, that sounds good. We don't like nobles. Uh, we, we don't want to have a nobility here. And we especially uh, don't want to have foreign nobles uh, uh, running our uh, fragile uh, little nation. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's... Uh, Let's do that. And then later they have this bigger implication that, that uh, came from that. Right. And then they also, um, at the, at the, uh, at the same time said, you know, let's try and keep the bribery in house. Right. Uh, again, that seemed to be sort of part of that same discussion because it's right up there in the same clause of the Constitution. Right. So did this, uh, clause, uh, just lie there innocently not doing anything until we now have to learn, uh, what it means or have there been, uh, 
prior controversies about violations or alleged violations of the emoluments clause. I do not know of any prior controversies about violations or alleged violations of the emoluments clause. Partly that's because up until fairly recently, uh, most of our presidents were um, uh, <laughs> made made their money at home and didn't need to uh, go uh, abroad in search of investment. Uh, I think it probably would have come up given the multinational operations of the Clinton Foundation had Hillary won. It is certainly coming up now, given the multiple uh, multiple multinational operations of the Trump, what it, whatever the opposite of an empire is, but the the the, the Trump Commonwealth, I guess, uh, out there. And so you have situations where if there's a Trump Tower in China and the Bank of China rents space in it, that's an emolument. That's a foreign government thing paying money to the president, and that would seem to set up a, an alarm bell or a red flag. Uh, previously, most of the things that came under it were like when you would do a deal with. Uh, uh, some Arabian sultan, and they would say, and for you then, a giant bag of gold. And the president would have to say, thank you for the bag of gold. And Congress put the bag of gold in the treasury. <laughs> and so they would have to have sort of little acts that would allow them to accept the 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 gift and then usually move it right over into the treasury. With, um, uh, with more recent presidents, um, you have to sort of establish a blind trust so that your financial dealings stay separate from your presidential dealings. And that usually takes care of it. Basically the interest of foreigners in bribing the president has not tracked, uh, the ability of the, of the, the exposure of, of our presidents to foreign influence in that way. Although obviously you get situations whereby you have foreign donors to various political campaign committees or other such activities. And then there's plenty of cases where not, presidents, but other executive branch officials have upon leaving the government, and one certainly hopes it was upon leaving the government, suddenly come into giant multi-million dollar jobs lobbying for, say, Saudi Arabia or wherever. And so you have any number of situations where the emoluments clause is sort of honored in the breach in a lot of cases, uh, but at the full-on presidential level, so far there don't seem to have been any giant screaming deals about it. This could just be me not having um, uh, heard about any such big screaming deals, but there don't seem to be any anything that I that I know about. Well, if you haven't heard of them, I don't know who has. Exactly. Exactly. Jerks, mostly. So what ironclad enforcement mechanisms did the founders put in place to go with the emoluments clause? The same one they put for everything in the Constitution, impeachment. So you, you don't want to have the president violating any part of the Constitution, but there's not like a misdemeanor version of violating the Constitution. You're either impeached or you're not, and that is why... To avoid a constitutional crisis, there are times when people say, I think President Roosevelt violated the Constitution by packing the Supreme Court, but we're not going to impeach him. And similarly, you had people, you know, even very recently saying President Obama is violating the Constitution by doing executive, by spending executive money without congressional authorization, but we're not going to impeach him over it. So it just suddenly becomes a power of the president unless you cut it back. Right. So enforcement on impeachment depends on the a will of the uh, Congress to act as, as a check. And of course, the founders were not envisioning a future of tight party loyalty. They were envisioning uh, a sort of a, a, a horse tradey situation where people's uh, ability to hold on to their power uh, depended on their independence, which the voters would then reward. Uh, that's not the case now, right? <laughs> Of course not, Robin. He, he says, like a lawyer asking a question he already knows the answer to. So when did that first 
uh, start to uh, change? When uh, did it become apparent that the uh, will of the Congress was the important thing in an impeachment hearing more so than their uh, principled adherence to the Constitution? Well, I mean, in theory, you can go back to the Louisiana Purchase is the first clearly unconstitutional thing done by a president, and yet, you know, it got the Louisiana Purchase. So everyone said, that's fair. And, and what part of the Constitution did that violate? Well, it, there was nothing in the Constitution that said you could do it. And back in those days, doing something the Constitution didn't say you could do was violating the Constitution. In these in these uh, expansive post-New Deal era, I guess America could... The, the Congress can do pretty much anything at once. But back in those days, it couldn't. The first sort of uh, Congress gets up on its hind legs and impeaches a guy was Andrew Johnson. And that was actually impeaching him over something that is pretty clearly within the presidential power, namely firing a cabinet official. So you can get into any number of uh, back and forths over exactly at what point. But for whatever reason, the impeachment gun is not one that we have reached for an awful lot, you know, nationally, even as a threat. And it right. just becomes a, a situation where... Because it's an ill-constructed gun that often blows up in the face of the person firing it. Right, as indeed it has in at least two out of three cases in which uh, Andrew Johnson survived his impeachment and Bill Clinton survived his. And then um, uh, Richard Nixon resigned rather than be impeached. So you've got the same... You know, you, you've got, you've got a, a problem with the enforcement, which is the whole problem with a strong executive, which is why people like Elbridge Jerry said we shouldn't have a strong executive. And uh, the fact that we can't all be George Washington may, in fact, have been a stronger argument than even Elbridge Jerry thought it was. Right. So does this suggest, in fact, that there is no point learning how to pronounce the word emoluments because it's a thing that we're talking about a lot, but won't ever come into play, that it's difficult to envision a situation in which this is actually going to be a big deal. I think that um, <laughs> if if our biggest problem is the violation of the emoluments clause, we've all dodged a bullet, but uh, we will certainly want to pronounce it because it is going to be said an awful lot, and rightly so, unless uh, the incoming president-elect Trump uh, figures out how to wall off his business empire from his executive office responsibilities. I mean, it's, it's going to be pretty well, and, plain. And figures that, out implies an intention and desire to do so, which yes, so well, far has not been evidenced. There's, there's, <laughs> there is, um, uh, there is all manner of, th uh, many a slip between cup and a lip. And he has so far come up with, as is his wont, several answers to the question, none of which are compatible with each other. And few of them are compatible with the constitution. He's gone even to the president Nixon. If the president does it, it's not against the law answer, which while perhaps true de facto is not something you want to institutionalize de jure, I think. And so the, um, yeah, we are, we are in for a great deal of squabbling about the emoluments clause, uh, going forward and whether or not wiser heads prevail. And there is a, uh, a screen thick enough that at least the New York times will pretend that it exists, which is, I guess the difference again, the, the, the amount of foreign emoluments flooding into former and future executive branch personnel, in between jobs is similarly violative of the constitution and similarly not something that people, you know, get too bent out of shape about apparently. So we will see what we will see. But as of right now, we are in a situation where you should probably learn to say emoluments, but that's about all that's going to have to happen. Right. You open the door that uh, says emoluments on it. And on the other side is a big, unexplored territory of probably nothing. And when we've determined that we're talking about probably nothing, it's time to move on to another segment.
the skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker-killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! Well, we said we'd be visiting it more often, and here we are again in the shadowy confines of the Conspiracy Corner. But this time, we're going to go back a bit in time uh, to a story that Patreon backer Leandro Ugarte wants us to get into, which uh, I think sort of dovetails with uh, last week's Conspiracy Corner. We were talking about propaganda as a way of uh, leveraging uh, people's mythic understanding in order to achieve political persuasion or dominance. And here we have a weird crime that is also an act of mythic propaganda, and that is the disappearance of Juan Perón's hands. Now, uh, we could probably spend a whole hour just trying to explain to non-Argentinians like ourselves (laughs) uh, who Juan Perón was and what he stood for, because he's a very complicated a figure who sort of doesn't map easily to uh, right-left uh, boundaries at all times. So, Ken, do you want to give people the super-potted introduction to Juan Perón before we move on to what happened to his hands? Juan Perón was elected president of Argentina, and during his presidential term, governed more by decree. Right. And, and to interrupt with some, some time here, yeah. uh, he was uh, elected in forty six. Uh, ruled till 55, he was removed in a military coup, and then he comes back briefly in the 70s, from 73 to his uh, death of a heart attack in 74. Right, he is, he is, um, he was exiled from Argentina and forbidden to run for office because of his bad behavior during his first terms. And so a guy who ran for president as stalking horse for him, and then he sort of swooped in and said, now I will be your president because you voted for my guy. And, uh, and then so he, he replaced this guy Campora and becomes president of, of Argentina one more time until he dies. Um, and so he, he creates his own brand of populism that yeah. uh, brings together uh, some people on, on the left because his goal is to elevate the status of the uh, working class, which is not great when he starts out in, uh, in 46 in Argentina, but also has some support from the right, although not perhaps the ruling class on top. If you look at Perón, I look at Perón the way that if you think of the the very early National Socialist Party, there's the national half and the socialist half to oversimplify. And the socialist half is people like Gregor Strasser and Ernst Röhm, and the national half is more of your um, Hitlers. And we all know who won. But if the socialist part of National Socialism had won, you can sort of, I, I sort of see that Perón is the Gregor Strasser or the Ernst Röhm uh, wing of South American fascism, that he's the sort of left fascism, not communism, but the left fascism that was the road not taken in Europe in the 30s, but it was taken, I think, in Argentina in the 40s and 50s. And I think that that does somewhat oversimplify Perón, but we've already gone in saying we're going to do that. And 
it's probably a good touchstone to keep a hold of, even though obviously there's going to be individual cases where you could bicker and argue and say, Gregor Strasser would never have done that before his sudden death during the night of the long knives or whatever. But, uh, I think that that, that, that's sort of the flavor of Perone. It, it gives it to you. So, uh, when did Juan Perone's hands disappear and under what circumstances? Well, um, unless he was fond of doing hilarious magic tricks for his grandnephews or something, uh, they disappeared after his death. In, uh, 1974, he dies. He's buried in 1976 in, uh, the Perone family tomb in Buenos Aires. And, uh, in 1987, the Peronist party, the judicialist party, gets a letter saying that Perone's hands have been removed and demanding an $8 million ransom. The letter in a, the first of many fun parts of this story was signed by Hermes IAI and the 13, and it quoted a poem by Isabel Perone, his third wife and last wife, uh, which is on the coffin, taken from our hands with a sweetness not forgotten. So already we are dealing with merry pranksters, uh, admittedly of a grave robbing bent. But when we got the, the question, I had not known that Perone's hands were missing. I thought they, they were still stuck to his wrists or rolling rocks in hell or something. It, it, it's, it's the default. <laughs> it's the default. And then I look into this story and it just keeps getting better. I only wish that I had time to order the book about it. I had time to order it, but I didn't have time to uh, get it to, or to read receive it, so. it and peruse it fully. So much love about Perone's hands. But anyway, yes, uh, they get this ransom note and then they go and open the coffin and sure enough, Someone has dismembered his hands, uh, probably with a bone saw, um, and taken them away. They also took his uh, sword, as it happens. So maybe the hands are misdirection, and they meant to take his magic sword. Uh, that's more boring, but there you go. And so they began investigating the crime. Uh, Judge Jaime Farsuau uh, was the lead investigator, in because in uh, the Latin countries uh, and uh, Roman-descended countries, Judges are investigators as well as judges. Um, he died, what some would call mysteriously. He certainly died before they figured out what happened. No one was ever tried for it, although some people were arrested and, uh, I guess, let off without trial, or perhaps they murdered in prisons to this day. I'm not sure what happens. And so with his death, the steam goes out of the investigation, and no one has ever figured out what happened to his hands. Uh, no one paid the $8 million ransom to get them back. There was no negotiation with hand terror. No, no negotiation. We will not shake the hands of hand thieves in Argentina. They uh, suspect it might have been an inside job because uh, the tomb was not broken into. It was opened. That said, I can't imagine the lock on the tomb was so hard as to defeat anyone who's good at picking locks. So who can say? But there's no no seeming signs of forced entry into the tomb. So maybe it was someone at the uh, cemetery who got bribed, or maybe it was someone connected to the Perone family, or maybe it was someone connected to the Argentine government. Who can say? And that's where the mystery and the magic begins to happen. Right. Uh, and there is a theory uh, that connects them to uh, a the subject of a previous conspiracy corner, uh, Propaganda Due. Uh, remind people uh, quickly what uh, that is. Yes. Uh, Propaganda Due is a uh, Masonic organization that also engages in uh, radical right-wingish parapolitics, according to some, but is certainly a Masonic organization that was uh, jambled up in the uh, armpit of Italian politics and uh, creepy banks and all manner of excitement and may or may not have committed the Masonic murder of Vatican banker Roberto Calvi, but probably didn't. Um, and so that was, uh, that's uh, their buddy, Licio Gelli, who is a, a big sort of um, uh, figure in 
the propaganda due, spent a good bit of time in, guess where? Argentina, when, as a fugitive, when he was wanted for trial for various badnesses in Italy, he goes off to Argentina, where he has a bunch of P2 Lodge brothers, apparently. Right. And he played a role in the return of uh, Perón for his uh, surprise second term. Right. Yes. And so he uh, got to be, um, uh, he was he probably greased some wheels somewhere. He got a sweet um, uh, 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 economic counselor uh, sinecure and uh, was apparently the guy who initiated Perón into Freemasonry. So that's good. And of course, Freemasonry involves what? A bunch of mysterious handshakes. And what that means that your hands are full of Freemason power. Uh, so I think we're now edging toward what I think Leandro really wants. He doesn't want us to stop at nobody knows. He wants the secret arcane truth. The secret arcane truth. are going to make up or, uh, you know, actually know. So uh, the hands, therefore, we've determined are uh, resonant uh, with uh, Masonic power, uh, presumably by uh, rising to the top of a hierarchy and becoming a populist uh, demagogue slash dictator you accumulate a lot of hierarchical power and so uh was this merely as some uh, suggest a, a mythic attempt to uh, take the magical wind out of the sails of Argent argentinian peronists or uh, did it have um, even more sinister implications well when you say the words even more sinister allow me to respond with the words the rasputin of the pompous <sighs> <laughs> Please. Yes. Elucidate. There is a guy who is in the Peronist government. He was the Minister of Social Welfare and a black magician uh, nicknamed El Brujo, uh, the sorcerer. He was part of right-wing Peronism, let's say. He was a student of Julia Evola, who was the fascist magical theorist. Um, and he, his name, in case I haven't said it yet, is Jose Lopez Rega. And he was in charge of uh, opening fire on the left-wing Peronists at a giant rally at the um, uh, what's, what's called the Aceza Massacre. Lopez uh, Rega had snipers mow down the left-wing Peronists who gathered to welcome him back from exile, just to let them know that this was not going to be your um, uh, your sort of socialist national socialism. This was going to be hardcore national socialist national socialism, and we were going to let Peron be Peron or something. So Lopez Rega is a bad dude. Um, he got into Umbanda in the fifties as a kid or not, a not as a kid in the fifties as a, as a police officer. Um, he was, uh, part of the, um, sort of the equivalent of the secret service. He was the military police that protected the Capitol. Um, and he got into esotericism, a, a clairvoyant, uh, named Victoria. I don't know, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's Victoria Montero initiated him into, uh, Umbanda, which is a Brazilian, uh, variant of the Afro-Caribbean religious tradition, but it's very much influenced by European spiritualism, uh, Cardicism specifically. And so he began to get very interested in Umbanda and spiritualism, which led him into the uh, deeper levels of the occult and among them, uh, Julio Evola and other, uh, great, uh, fascist magical thinkers, because of course there was tons of weird ritual magicians swirling around Mussolini's fascism, just like there were tons of them swirling around uh, Hitler's Nazism, because once you've said, let's go crazy, everyone goes crazy. So he, um, he is the guy, if you were looking for a black magician with a strong opinion about Perón, who may or may not have had ties to mysterious hermetic magical uh, circles, you are looking at 
the Rasputin of the Pampas, Jose Lopez Rega. And I think that he's the guy who is involved in cutting the hands of Perón off. And I think that, that it's not so much a thing where he's trying to mess with the memory of Perón, although crippling Perón's, um, uh, uh, ca and making it dependent on, uh, Jose Lopez Rega in life would probably not have been a bad thing. But I think it was also an attempt to use the power of Perón's hands for his own magical ends. Um, we don't know that they succeeded because he died a couple of years after uh, the tomb was broken into uh, of diabetes while uh, getting ready to get tried for uh, all manner of awfulness, uh, including that massacre. Yes. It's, it's weird that there's no ritual magic to cure diabetes. It's all world domination. If it is, you you should have cut out his pancreas, not his hands, I guess. Yeah. Uh, And his desire for ice cream. So I think our listeners at this point are thinking fascists, Argentina, talking to the author of the Nazi occult. How many uh, steps of separation does it take to get to uh, exiled Nazis in Argentina from him to them? Uh, very few, I suspect. Um, I, I don't know to what extent Jose Lopez Rega might or might not have been tied in with the Ratlines and Odessa. Um, I suspect if he wasn't, he was buddies with people who were. Um, he would have been too young and uninfluential at the time it would have been needed to start bringing people into uh, Argentina in the late, in the like 45, 46, he's still a corporal in the, in the secret service and in, in that presidential guard. But it would have been part of the, uh, the, the wing of guys that would have brought those guys over and then might certainly have hung out with various exiled Nazi uh, esotericists in the, uh, in the Pampas learning from them at the same time that Perón is trying to get them to build him super airplanes and fusion plants and whatnot. So I think uh, having pointed the finger at the uh, (laughs) thief of uh, Perón's hands, that we can uh, declare uh, yet another podcast victorious and exit out through the outro and visit you all next week again. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games, Pelgrain Press, Askfageln, Art Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such incorruptible patrons as Paul Richmond, Rafe Ball, Richard August, Richard Ruane, and Ryan Leibarger. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com backslash user backslash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.